Well, I'm glad to be back with you back in the book of Genesis this morning, uh, Genesis chapters 2 and 3. Pastor Daniel was right when he kept saying Genesis 3. We're going to try to cover two chapters today, Genesis chapters 2 and 3. And uh, uh, it's always good to be back in the Word and be able to consider what the Word of God says for us. Uh, although last week was quite a blessing uh, with uh, all of the baptisms and the new members joining I hope you were encouraged by that. I, I just always love to have some time in, in the Word to hear the preached Word of God or to consider it uh, together. Uh, the preached Word, along with your daily time in the Word, is like they're like meals given to you to cause you to grow into the image of Jesus Christ, to look more like Him. And so we love to go verse by verse, section by section through the Bible. And today, uh, I'm just so enthused for uh, the text that God has for us to consider. The last time we were in Genesis, we considered chapter 1, everything good that God created. And my outline went like this. In seven days, God formed and then filled the universe. And then finally on day 7, he rests. He forms, he fills, and he rests. Today, we're going to look at the next section. It begins in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 4. And... Uh, there is a phrase right at the beginning of verse 4 that uh, reoccurs 11 times in the book of Genesis, and it divides this book up into 12 parts. The phrase is, these are the generations of, that phrase is repeated over and over again. And it acts as a header for the section, the entire section that follows. And so this account that we'll begin to look at today is a history of what became of the heavens and the earth that God created in chapter 1. What became of the good creation of God from that section. As we start into this part of Genesis, Genesis 2, 4 through the end of chapter 4, I want you to imagine a modern reader reading about the bright and the beautiful world that God created in Genesis 1, but then pausing to look out his window and consider the world around him today. In 2020, our world is in terrible shape. What an interesting year we have endured the year started, of course, with a coronavirus pandemic, which shut down our economy and our worship gatherings for months. But this virus not only did that, it led to much sickness throughout the world and has contributed to over one million deaths worldwide. This year continued with significant injustices and murders and racial divisions and civil unrest through looting and rioting all across our country. And on top of that, we have faced a record number of casualties through natural disasters, through things like hurricanes and wildfires. So how do we answer those around us who are looking to us for answers to all of the pain and the suffering, the darkness of our world? What explanations should we give them? Well, to seek answers to all of the chaos and the darkness around us, I think it's important for us to pay attention to what the Bible says. To pay attention especially to what Moses says in this chapter, in these two chapters, about what became of God's good creation. 
His full answer, starting in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 4, comes in one narrative that has two parts and includes all of these chapters, 2, 3, and 4. This morning, we're going to look at Act number one, or the first part, I I call it the garden story that you'll see in Genesis chapters two and three. Next week, Lord willing, we'll look at act number two in this one narrative, and that one I call the Cain-Abel story. It's found in Genesis chapter four in your Bible. These two parts of one narrative are exactly where God begins to answer the question, How can you explain all the darkness and the chaos around us in our world? And so the way the garden story unfolds in Genesis 2 and 3 is a story of paradise gained and paradise lost. Those are my two main points today. So if you're taking notes, you like notes, if you want an outline, here's the outline. Okay, paradise gained, Genesis 2, paradise lost, Genesis 3. So the story begins with the creation of man in his garden residence that God has given to him. Look with me at Genesis chapter 2, and we'll look at verses 4 through 17 to read of the creation of man in the garden. It says, These are the generations of the heaven and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God had made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. Verse 6. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of the Havilah. Where there is gold, and the gold of the land is good. Bedellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat. Of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat it, or eat of it, you shall surely die. Within this grand narrative, God works in powerful ways. And I think that Moses describes his working as both a potter and as a garden planter. First, in verse 7, the text says that God forms the man from the dust of the ground and that he breathes into his nostrils the breath of life. I think this language in verse 7 portrays God in a vivid way as a potter. So, for instance, this word forms here in verse 7 is a word that's used throughout the Bible time and time again of a potter shaping 
pottery. You could go to the books of Isaiah and Jeremiah, for instance, to read about potters forming things out of clay. Here it's God forming man out of the dust of the ground. Now, after fashioning the man, this covenant God, the Lord God, breathes personally into the nostrils of the man. This is the divine in breathing. And at that moment, God gives to Adam, man, a transcendent life force. That's interesting. As I was reading through Genesis chapter 2, and was reading some of the commentary literature, what the scholars will do at this section. I put scholars in quote marks. I'm thankful for how God has led people to write on this book, but sometimes we need to be careful with what scholars will say. Scholars uh, who come to this text ask why we have two accounts of the creation of the man and the woman. Chapter 1, of course, there's a verse about God creating man and woman on the sixth day, but then here you have a longer section about it. And so scholars ask why and sometimes even suggest that there are differences between the two accounts found in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. You looked at this fully, though, I would suggest that there are actually no differences in the account. But the second account allows Moses to do something. The second account allows Moses to focus in on the brief account that he given before and to give you more important information about how this occurred on day six of creation. To use a modern illustration, it's like, it's like Moses double clicks on this. Double clicks on the creation of man and then it opens up and now it's a fuller account. Or it's like, you know, one person giving a one-sentence description of something, but then describing it in full detail. It's like just saying, like, uh, there was a circus that came into town in Virginia Beach, one sentence. But then later on, to return to that sentence and to say, and, and to work through every part of that circus, all of the shows, all of the acts, to go through it and give you fuller detail. That's what Moses is doing in chapter 2. Okay, and so he first describes God here as a potter fashioning and shaping and then breathing into the nostrils of Adam so that he has the breath of life. But then second, God describe, or Moses describes God as uh, a garden planter. Look at verse 8. God planted a garden in Eden for the man. And so for the pinnacle of his creation, mankind, God prepares this Special garden residence. I think this is a literal garden. The text presents it as a, as a place that's enclosed and protected and produces plant life, fruit life that's flourishing. This is a special place that God arranged for Adam and Eve that was brimming with life. There were fruit trees there. There was the tree of life. There was a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And there are rivers surrounding this special garden. I think instead of thinking of it or looking at it as a small little garden that God created, it's perhaps something more like a national forest full of fruit trees and life that God gives. And it's, it's also filled with that precious ancient commodity of water. The thing that civilizations are based on. 
In this garden paradise, it's surrounded with abundant resources as well. We read about the gold, the bedellium, and the onyx stones that are there. The garden also, we find out later, is a place where man is able to have fellowship with God. We found out later that God comes in the cool of the day to talk with him. And so in this way, the garden was a garden temple. It was a prototype of all of the other temples that you will read about in Scripture. I think it's no coincidence. For instance, when you're reading later and you read about the tabernacle and what it looks like and how it's designed and the images of the tabernacle, that you will see some images that reflect the Garden of Eden. The same is true of the temple as well. And so God creates man and his garden And he's about ready to finish this first scene when he gives us some very important instruction in verses 15 through 17. So I want to read this with you again. Look down at Genesis 2, 15 through 17. It says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. There are two things I want to emphasize here. First, we learn why God put Adam or the man in the garden. It's very clear in verse 15, isn't it? He puts him in the garden to do two things, to work it and to keep it. Okay, we know this passage rests very well, but I want you to just think about the ramifications of this for a moment. He puts Adam in the garden first to work it. Uh, An implication here, a strong implication, is that work is not a result of the fall. It was something that existed before Adam was ever impacted by sin. He is to be working. Now, his work would would have been much easier at this point before the fall, right? The land would be producing easily, but he's working. It's a part of God's design. But perhaps more important for this narrative as it's described in Genesis 2 and 3 is the mention of the fact that he's also supposed to to keep the garden. Now, I want to suggest something to you that is perhaps a little unusual. Maybe you haven't heard this before, but it's my view on this, okay? And there are other people who hold this too, so it's not just crazy. I think to keep it is not necessarily talking about how Adam is to physically care for the garden. That is working it. But that to keep it could also be translated to guard it or to protect it. And so here it seems to me with this word, this Hebrew word samar, you could translate it guard or protected. And so this means that Adam was tasked with keeping the garden holy or sanctified. We'll soon see in this story that he fails in his task to guard or protect the garden so that God finds some other being to guard the garden. And so this is why he's there, though, to work it and keep it. But notice also uh, God's command here in these verses, verses 16 and 17. God's command is that Adam can eat of any of the luscious fruit trees in the garden except one the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This tree is a peculiar tree, an odd tree that's difficult for for us to consider. 
But I would just suggest at this point that this tree is important to the story because it's this particular tree that will demonstrate whether human beings will willfully follow God or whether they will seek autonomy. Thinking the word autonomy as self-rule. Whether they will be gods to themselves. And of course, the penalty of eating of this tree is very clear. It's certain and sudden death. So Moses zooms in here on God's creation of man and the special place for man to live, the garden residence. But he's not quite done with his description of paradise gained. He also will tell us about the creation of woman in the next verses. So look in your Bible, verse 18, chapter 2, verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock to, and to the birds of heaven and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man And while he slept, took one of his ribs and clothed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman for she was taken out of the man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now, it's interesting to me here how God describes the creation of the woman and how God arranges these events. He starts first by putting Adam in a place where Adam will likely realize that he is incomplete as an alone human being. So the way God orchestrates this, it will be obvious to him that this is the case. Being all by himself in the human race, Adam is not like the rest of animate creation. All other beings have fellowship with species or uh, some within their own species or kind, but not Adam. He's alone. And this becomes obvious as he names every one of the other creatures on day six. But second, I want you also to notice that in creating woman for the man, woman, the text says twice, is created as a helper for man. And I want to just think about that word with you for a moment. When we hear the English word helper, especially in our modern world, we might think that it's a bit derogatory or that it's indicating that in some way or another, the woman was not equal to the man. However, Genesis chapter 1 has already revealed to us that that's not the case. In Genesis chapter 1, you have the description of the male and the female, and and you have this, this idea that they are both created in the image of God. And I think the key to to understanding that this word is in no sense derogatory is to just look at the actual Hebrew word that's used. When when we hear the English word helper, we might think of, of someone of lower rank or status. 
But when you actually look at the Hebrew word and the way that that word is used, and you do a word study, it becomes clear that this is not in any way indicating that she's inferior. There's one Old Testament scholar by the name of Bruce Waltke, and he did this word study. I was getting ready to do it, and he just put all the evidence of the word study right in his commentary. And it's a simple word study. He writes this. He said, the word helper is used of God in 16 out of the 19 times that it appears in the scripture, the Old Testament. This word signifies that woman is essential in her contribution and in no way inadequate. And so you see how you can just use the study of that word. God is a helper. He's in no way inferior. The same thing is told of the woman. She is a helper for the man. So God creates the woman from the side of the man and Adam immediately knows that she's perfect for him. His response, I love it. It's emphasized in the original. His response is, at last, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. He no longer is alone with no other human beings for fellowship. Now, before I get to the second part of this narrative, I want to make two applications for us as a church. I want you to think about the importance of Genesis chapter 2 to, to our beliefs here today in our modern world. First of all, I want you to notice this is how God designs it. One man and one woman together as husband and wife. I don't want us to lose sight of that in the midst of our fallen and degenerate world. As a matter of fact, built right into the doctrinal statement of Colonial Baptist Church years ago, we made this statement. We believe and teach that physical intimacy outside of the marriage bond is morally unacceptable. The marriage bond is holy and defined by the scriptures as a lifelong commitment between a husband, male, and a wife, female. I want to suggest to you that we should anticipate as a local assembly much pressure on this one. Much pressure from the world around us as society continues to degenerate to reject what the Bible clearly says in Genesis chapter 2. One man, one woman cleaving together for life. And to reject what Paul says, if Paul thinks it's so important, the beginning of Romans chapter 1, he talks about the great sin of homosexuality. So as a church, we should expect pressure, but God has specifically designed male and female to be joined together in marriage. Now, I want to make one other application here, and it's just because it hit me at this point as I was reading and, and, and thinking through this text as well. And, and that is to say that sometimes God's perfect design of human beings after this original creation involves singleness. Singleness. I think that it could be easy to read this passage and be discouraged if you're a single man or woman here today. The point of the story, however, is not that every man and woman must be married for completion. 
That's not the point of the story. As a matter of fact, later the apostle Paul makes things very clear in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. He says, sometimes singleness is better. Sometimes singleness is an advantage in one's walk with the Lord. Sometimes singleness is God's design for a human being. And so because of God's abundance of blessing on mankind and humanity as a whole, all human beings, whether single or married, can now enjoy good community with other human beings made in the image of God. Okay, and so I, I just want to make that clear as well as we work through this story. Now, let's return to the story. Returning to our story here, God is telling us what became of the good creation that he has formed the heavens and the earth. And so far in Genesis chapter two, man and woman are in a garden temple paradise and everything's going well. That is until a tricky snake arrives at the beginning of Genesis chapter three, the next scene, paradise lost. Look with me in your Bibles at Genesis three verses one through five, where we will see Eve's dialogue with the devil. Look at verse one. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any, any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you shall not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Here the story takes an amazing twist, does it not? This garden story. We're introduced to a snake that speaks with a woman. It's interesting to me here is we're not told, we're not given some answers to some questions like you really perhaps have, you know, that you'd want to have answered. Like one question I have would be is, should, be, should she be surprised by this? A snake talking with her? Moses doesn't give us that answer, though, though. He, he gets right to the story. And I think it will become clear later as you continue to read in Scripture that the serpent here is actually Satan. Although that's not clearly manifest in this text, you can go to places like Revelation 19 and Revelation 20 to find out that the serpent, that ancient serpent, is actually Satan, the devil. Now, the way the story goes here, Eve communicates with a literal snake this is not a mirage. This is not a vision or something that she contrives in her mind. This is not a metaphor. No matter what scholars might tell you, it's presented as a literal snake. So it seems that Satan indwells a serpent and communicates to the woman through the snake. And the conversation has three parts. Do you go quickly through it? It starts with this snake asking a crafty question, a question designed to sow discord and confusion or to deceive the woman. The woman then answers the question and says that there is actually only one tree in the garden they can't eat of or touch, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now again, a, a good bit of scholarly ink has been spilled on why the woman added the phrase, or touch it, lest you die. 
Again, I don't know if a certain answer is quite possible because the text doesn't come right out and tell us. It may be that Eve added this to what Adam told her that's like a legalistic add-on to what God said. It may be that Adam added it, right? God had told Adam about the tree, you shall not eat of it or you will certainly die. Maybe the Adam added it when he told it to Eve, right? It's like a legalistic safeguard. Or it could also be that God communicated this to, to her or to him. Uh, what we have in the Bible is a brief summary of what God says. He could have said more. We don't know for certain. All we know is that the woman just answers it this way. That's when the serpent goes from question to contradiction, from questioning God and questioning the woman to directly contradicting him. The serpent rejects what God has said and explains, you will not certainly die, but you will become like God. Okay, this is a dialogue with Satan. But things get far worse in this story, and I know you know this story, but we get to verse 6. And we get to one of the saddest verses in all the Bible. This is perhaps the saddest moment in world history. Look in your Bibles at one verse, Genesis 3, 6, the fall. It says, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Men and women, this is what became of God's good creation. With this one choice of man and woman, the good creation of God becomes dark and dismal and damned. Here the woman is tempted by looking at the fruit and by coveting what she thinks it can do for her. She thinks that it will make her free of God's rule. She desires to be her own God be ruled by self. So she takes the fruit and she eats it. That's when we're introduced to another character in this part of the story. We haven't heard from her husband, Adam, for quite some time in this story. While we haven't heard or seen from him so far, this part of the story, it appears that Adam has been privy to the entire conversation or to the conversation between the woman and the serpent. For not only does the text say that he was with her, he was with her at this time. If you go up to verses four and five, I wanna point out something to you about the way Satan appeals to the woman in verses four and five. Look in your Bible, verse four. But the serpent said to the woman, you. That you there is not singular, it's plural. You, you all. This context, you, humanity. In this context, you, the woman and the man. You all will not surely die. For God knows that when you all, plural, eat of it, your, plural, eyes will be opened and you, plural, will be like God, knowing good from evil. You see, I believe that Adam is a witness to the dialogue between the serpent and the woman. 
And Adam's failure here is obvious, is it not? Adam should have stepped forward to protect the wife, his wife, Eve. Excuse me, serpent. I don't know who you are, but you're not going to talk that way to my wife. And you will not talk that way about my father, God. Yahweh. You will not talk that way about our good God who gave us all of this. So you need to leave. Instead of doing that, however, Adam fails, he's passive, he does not lead his wife, and he willfully chooses to sin against God by eating the fruit. This is a very sad day. As a matter of fact, I get that phrase from an author who produced a children's Bible, like one of those storybook Bibles, his name is David Helm, and the title over this section is a very sad day. This decision by man and woman leads to a series of, of results and consequences for all of the characters in the story. And things get very devastating. And it's been my prayer that we will feel this afresh and anew as we look at these next verses. So look with me at verse 7. Look with me at verse 7 at the immediate results. It says, And the eyes of both were open, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among all the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Here the consequences, the immediate consequences start right at the beginning of verse 7. It says that their eyes were both opened. But the new vision they have on this side of eating the fruit is quite a letdown to them. Their eyes were open and they recognize that they're in sin. I was reading through this story over and over again this week. I couldn't help but think, oh, the overwhelming shame and guilt Adam and Eve must have felt at this point. Overwhelming guilt and shame. They now know they can see it. But then I thought, you know, this is a, a sense of shame and guilt that every single person here today can relate with ourselves. When we in our sinful rebellion choose to disobey God and are put in that place where there's no squirming out from underneath it. Oh, the shame. Continue to look here. Instead of going back to God in humble acknowledgement and repentance of their sin, what do they do? They, they try to hide and cover their sin. And they blame shift. 
It's interesting if you're reading these words in the original. It's not to the very last words of Adam and of Eve in verses 12 and 13 that they admit any sort of personal culpability here. Matter of fact, you can see this in the English version we're reading, verse 12. Look at verse 12. The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree. And look at these words, and I ate. It's like tacked on at the end of the Hebrew and the English. The woman you, God, gave me, she gave to me and and I ate. But then you look at Eve's response, it's, it's similar. Look at the end of verse 13. The woman said, the serpent, the serpent deceived me and I ate. I must get the impression like, and, and I ate. They quickly point out the other offenders, but it's only finally that they'll acknowledge their own sin. That leads to some lasting consequences that God gives and places on them. Look at verse 14. We'll read through verses 14 through 19. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and thus you shall eat all the days of your life. I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. <coughs> to the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Verse 17, and to Adam he said, because you've listened to the voice of your wife, have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth to you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, like the old King James here, by the sweat of your brow, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Here God gives three lasting consequences in all the main characters of the story. His punishment begins in verses 14 and 15 with the serpent and Satan. The way I take this, I think verse 14 is about the serpent itself. It's interesting to me that God holds this reptile responsible. I think it's because of the heinous act. The heinous act is so significant. This must be judged thoroughly. And so the snake will crawl around, slithering on the ground from this point forward, eating dust. But then in verse 15, the greater curse is placed on Satan. I think verse 15 is about Satan. Look with me again at verse 15. I will put enmity between you, the serpent, and the woman, and between your offspring, that's the the serpent's offspring, and her offspring. He, the woman's offspring, will bruise your head, and you will bruise his heel. I think verse 15 is far more than a verse indicating that women will always hate snakes. I think it's much more than that. Uh, Now, I do think snakes are creepy, and I hate them. But it's more than that. As you're looking through this, Instead, I would suggest that this is an indication that from this point forward, there'll be some beings, some human beings who will become the seed of Satan, while others will be the seed of the woman. 
I'll try to develop this in future sermons as I'm running a little bit late, but I'll just say later on in the New Testament, Jesus will look at the Pharisees and he'll say, you are of your father, the devil, the father of lies. So I think the scriptures will justify this idea that lost humanity will be of the seed of the, sa- of, of the serpent. But what I don't want you, you to miss here is that God points out to, to Satan that there is coming one special offspring of the woman, a man And while Satan will bruise this man's heel, this man will bruise Satan's head. Now, it's not until many pages later in your Bible, in our story, many years later in salvation history, that we'll see this realized in the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the seed of the woman. And although Satan will leap up to bite him in the heel, Jesus follows through in his resurrection and he delivers a fatal blow to Satan's head. Satan will lose. The seed of the woman, Jesus, will win. Can I get an amen to that? All right. Paul closes his magnificent, I was talking with Pastor Daniel beforehand. Paul closes his magnificent letter to the Romans in this way. Romans 16, verse 20. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. So this little part I think is powerful. And the curse on Satan, he's going to be overcome by the seed of the woman. But then secondly, we see his punishment on the woman in verse 16. The woman is punished with pain and childbearing. And this particular consequence follows down all throughout humanity to every generation. But then God makes another important statement at the end of verse 16. I want you to just look at it quickly. Look at this statement at the end. He says, your desire to the woman. He says, your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. I think it's important in how you take this phrase, okay? And, and just to be clear with you, I think there's some difference of opinion on this. There are some who would say that the word desire should be understood regarding her physical attraction to her husband. And the reason they would say that is because the word desire is used in places like the Song of Solomon to describe the desire of a woman for her husband. However, I think that interpretation runs into pr- some problems in the second half of that phrase. Verse 16, I think better is to see that the desire here is talking about a newfound internal desire of the wife in the wife to rule over or to control her husband. Say, Pastor, well, why do you hold that view? Well, I hold that view because of the word desire being used in the very next chapter. In the Cain Abel story. The Cain Abel story, God uses the same word when he's addressing Cain. Cain is getting angry about the sacrifice of his brother and how it's been accepted. And so God says this, he says, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is to control you. But then God closes to Cain. But instead, don't let sin and its desire be over you. Instead, you must Rule over it. 
That men and women is the same word that's used in this curse on the woman as well, describing what the man will do. He will rule over. He will dominate you. The woman will want to control him, but he will rule over or dominate her. This relationship at its worst will not be beneficent. It will be tyrannical. And so men and women, this is what sin does to the marriage relationship. To sinful men and women, marriage becomes a battlefield over who gets control. Alan Ross said it this way. He says, the woman at her worst will be a nemesis to the man, and the man at his worst will try to dominate the woman. Yet we know from the rest of Scripture that both of these impulses are sinful and wrong, and in Christ, God changes our impulses in marriage so that we will benevolently fulfill our obligations in marriage to gently lead and to love and help one another. If you're here today and you're married, I hope that you will daily crucify these desires in your own life. Don't be thinking right now about your spouse's sin. <laughs> Finally, pastor preached on this. Your desire will be for a husband. Don't be thinking of your wife. Be thinking of your own sin. Don't be thinking of your husband. Be thinking of your own relationship here. Do you desire to control or to dominate your spouse? If so, as a pastor, I would say, I think the, the Bible would call you to repent, to confess that as sin, to seek help, and to love like Jesus would love. Prefer your spouse at every moment of yourself. And so the woman's here, her curse will be, she will experience pain in bearing children and relational conflict with her husband. But we continue finally to the man. Consider God's punishment on the man in verses 17 through 19. His pronounced judgment here is that the man will work the ground and that that work will grow exponentially harder. The ground will be cursed because of his act Man will work painfully, toiling and sweating over his work until he returns to the dust. God's judgment here, I think, has been severe. It's been on every part, all three main characters. But I want to read the close of the story with you, and I'll just do this very quickly. Look at verses 20 through 24 at God's final removal of the man and the woman. Verse 20, the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. I'll just point out a few final things here very quickly. First, uh, the beginning of this, I think you have a statement of Adam's faith. Adam demonstrates faith. There's a bright spot here. Before this point in the story, Eve didn't have a name. She was called woman. She was taken out of the man. Now he gives her a name. The name is Eve. That word in Hebrew means life. And I want to suggest that Adam calls the, her this because he knows from Eve will come 
all human life. And this is a faith proposition because to this point, they hadn't had any children yet. But Adam believes God. And so then God responds by making them better clothes, things that will endure, and driving the man and woman out of the garden so that they cannot taste the tree of life and live forever in their condemned, sinful state. And finally, God places a cherubim, a powerful angelic being, in the garden to do something very important. Did you see what the cherubim and the sword are going to do there? They're going to guard the tree of life. This story started with Adam being created and put into this garden to work it and to keep it. And here the same exact word for keep is used. Adam was to guard the garden. And now a powerful angelic being guards the garden. This is the garden story. The first part of the narrative of what became of the good creation, the heavens and the earth. When we look around at the chaos and the disaster and the death all around us, our explanations to others should start with the garden story. This death, chaos, and things we face today, it's all the result of sin, a choice made by one man and one woman, a choice that brought the curse of God. Today we've addressed one of the saddest days in human history, and we considered the difficulties of our own moments, as we consider those, I think it's important for us to remember where all of this started and where all of it's heading. One day soon, the seed of the woman, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, will return and he will ultimately prevail. And followers of Jesus Christ will experience life in a new garden temple where we will be able to worship him forever and ever. Men and women, let's give others the Bible's explanation of the darkness and the chaos around us. Let's pray together. Lord, I am so thankful for your word. It grounds us. It settles us. Lord, as I consider my brothers and sisters in Christ in the midst of this difficult, challenging year, I know that we feel all out of sorts. I know that our comforts have been in some ways taken away. I know that some in our body have concerns and fears about what to expect. But Lord, may we remember the reason, the reason there's death and chaos and disease around us. And may we also remember that one day, the seed of the woman, Jesus Christ, will ultimately come back and will crush Satan under his foot. Lord, I pray that these thoughts would be so settling to us. 
May we be committed to tell others what the Bible says about the chaos and the darkness around us. And may we gladly point people to the only solution to sin and death, Jesus, our Savior. In Jesus' name we pray.